0: to the Retail Smarts Podcast. I'm your host, Dominique Lamb. Today we're incredibly lucky to be speaking to Emma Clegg and Molly Rogers from Jam the Label. And for any of our listeners who've been watching Australian Fashion Week, you would have seen just the incredible fashion show that these two girls put together, um, you know, with a very, very diverse um, model range. It was just incredible and, and certainly Beck who you know many of our listeners know and I were lucky enough to be front and center of there and you know guys I've got to tell you the atmosphere was just incredible I'm sure you could feel it as the designers and the creators but I don't think I just feel like nobody uh, could have left untouched by the sheer spectacle of what you created it was just unbelievable what was that experience
1: like for you both Thank you yeah we keep saying to people we were so overwhelmed by the reactions we received from the runway especially yeah from everyone that was there I don't think we really thought about in the lead up what the response would be we were just so focused on getting everything done getting everything ready for the runway that we hadn't prepared ourselves emotionally for how amazing everyone's response would be And you know afterwards we went backstage and everyone was crying hugging us and saying that you know Everyone was crying in the audience and a standing ovation. And um, yeah, we really didn't understand, I think, until probably a few hours later or even the next day, just how amazing that response was to get. Wow. And what was the kind of, I mean,
0: how much work goes into putting a runway together?
2: Uh, It was huge. And I think for us, it was our first ever runway. So, such a sort of um, initial experience of that. But not only that, but it was Australian Fashion Week. So, obviously, so much more as well. Um, We sort Of a couple of years ago, we were like, Oh, it would be really cool to do a runway. So we approached someone, we're talking about how we would go about it, and they were like, um, This is not that far away, and planning a runway is like planning a wedding. And ever and I were like, Oh, no, no, it can't be that bad, it can't be that much, but a lot went into it. Obviously, the garments, then the whole production side of it, and models, especially because ours was a little bit different to a regular runway sort of goes about because we chose our models first and then designed bespoke outfits around their. Particular dressing needs. So that was sort of, there was even more involved than I think a usual runway. So we definitely, yeah, it was very involved. <laughs> lots, yeah. yeah, lots.
0: And I guess, you know, having done the runway, does that mean that those items become a line? Like, are they going to be something that you can purchase from your website? No doubt you're getting asked this a lot now because there yeah. are so many people there that have seen, you know, kind of what you have on offer.
1: Yeah, again, it was a little bit different. We went into the runway thinking that. These pieces were just spoke pieces really to sort of educate the market on what adaptive clothing should be and how the design process is and how thoughtful it is. Um, however, we really had a great response for a lot of our products um, with people saying, hey, can I purchase them? When is this going to be available? That it's definitely, we're actually just about to put up the French coat, which we had a really great response from that um, Chloe Hayden modelled on the day we're about to put that up on our website as a made for order pre-order product, which is really exciting. We didn't we'd really do that, but, yeah, we've had a great response. We're definitely going to do that, hopefully, next week. Um, and then the other products are really going to influence our next range. So, hopefully, later this year, we're going through releasing our first sort of fashion-forward range um, of products, and I think, definitely, the response we've had from the product's one way is going to influence what our customers will see in that next frame.
0: it's so incredibly exciting. And I I guess for our listeners, I mean, what they might not know about both of you is, you know, that you're both occupational therapists, that you both were disability workers, that this brand was born out of two people that are very close to your heart, Jack and Maddie. Tell me about Jack and Maddie.
2: Yeah, sure. Molly works with Jack. So I worked with Jack. I've known him since he was around 11 years old. um, And we sort of worked together. Throughout, so that's been the last sort of uh, six years that I've known him. Um, and so Maddie and Jack are both uh, have cerebral palsy and are wheelchair users, and so require a lot of their sort of daily tasks. And Emma, yeah, worked with Maddie, and I worked with Jack, um, and we would help them sort of throughout their day with lots of different activities. And um, yeah, they're both sort of super bubbly, super happy. Um, Jack, yeah, his laugh smiles all the time. Every time I talk about him, like I'll I'll talk to him this weekend, and we'll say, Jack, you know, I talked about you on Friday. And he just lights up and friends. He just, yeah, loves it. Loves to bring all of that.
0: That's so incredible. And did um, did their families get to see Fashion Week? Do they have any idea how much impact, I guess, you know, their children have really had in terms of, you know, Australian fashion and diversity and, and just, you know, embracing disability? They weren't able to fly up to
2: Sydney. We're hoping to do a runway in Melbourne so they can all come and attend the show. They weren't able to come up to Sydney, but they definitely watched Um, the live stream and, yeah, we're really moved. Yeah, they tell us all the time how super proud they are. So, yeah, which is so nice. And I think that's the thing, isn't it, that that's the sort of legacy that will hopefully forever be around from Jack and Maddy. What's really
0: interesting as well about, you know, your brand and everything you've created is that it's become so much of an education piece. I mean, you you certainly write, you know, lots of really helpful information on your e-commerce platform. What has it been like, you know, becoming, I guess, a retailer in a tech space, still working kind of full-time jobs, you know, and then kind of staying true to the reason that you created the business?
1: Yeah, it's been a lot of learning for us. I think something that works really well is the fact that we do have that educational side of it. We have that really in-depth understanding of the problem and the solution and how we can explain to our customers or those that maybe don't have a disability that have never heard of adaptive clothing before. We can really clearly explain to them how we do it, what the functional aspect of fashion is um, and sort of our design process and everything like that. However, We've had to learn, you know, how to do that through marketing and who to reach out to to explain it and how to really simplify it. Um, because obviously, yeah, we have that occupational therapy background, so for us, it's you know sort of we deal with it every day. But for a lot of people, they would never have considered this before. But I think another thing that's really um, sort of simple to understand is that you know everyone gets stressed every day. Everyone interacts with fashion, whether they, think they do or not. And so when you explain that, so many people a script of that choice, a of that positive experience with getting dressed each day and being able to choose their fashion and their style, people really easily understand what we're providing.
0: Which is just, you know, I think just such an incredible story. And this is such a big switch up when you think about it. I mean, it, it's got to be very different from your day-to-day occupational therapy lives to now looking at SKUs <laughs> and looking at, you know, <laughs> online marketing. And, and I guess, you know, how have you gone from kind of converting your relationship from kind of friends i mean of course you're still friends but um into business partners as well
1: mm,
2: that was something so i think we learned quite quickly that we both have different skill sets and work quite differently so we have, we're very similar in some ways like our i think our values align really well and we both are passionate about similar things but for the first little while we were both trying to do everything like emma now we're sort of more in terms of the operational side of things and manufacturing partnerships, all sort of things like that, which is Emma's strength because she sort of likes to dot the, eyes and the keys and I's across the season. It's very structured, um, whereas I'm much more creative in terms of writing the Instagram and doing the marketing. And I think we have to sit down with each other and say, hey, you know, I'm totally happy for you to take the reins on that and I'm going to take the reins on this. And then we, there was less guilt with that as well. And we both realized, I think we do both get sort of passionate about different things within Jam. And so that's been really lucky, actually, because I think we wouldn't have been able to manage the workload if we didn't separate it. We were feeling very overworked, trying to sort of feeling guilty about the fact that I wasn't helping with the finances when I have no idea about that and don't really <laughs> care about it. <laughs>
1: but that's Emma's, that's Emma's thing. Yeah. And I think... We were like in terms of trying kind to of juggle the roles of still working with OTs and then also running the business. It actually worked really well at times, and most of the last three years, it's been really hectic um, and very overwhelming as time juggle. But I think it's been great that one, we've still been able to involve the community and sort of getting motivated each day to continue to do our work with them because we're seeing the impact in our OTs' jobs. But also, a lot of our OT and um, the sort of the things we do in our OT jobs are still really relevant and we're still practicing in JAM, um, whether that is, you know, sort of looking at the functional task dressing and functional aspects of design or even things like just making plans and organization. That's a huge part of being an OT. So we've been able to transfer the skills across both um, professions and both jobs, which has worked really well.
0: I mean, you guys have obviously created this online store. You've, you've got a, a line that you sell now and, and, you know, for any of our listeners, you can go on there, check out their, their clothes and, and purchase them. What's next? I mean, you just did Australian Fashion Week, which is pretty huge considering, <laughs> you know, there, there are plenty of brands that will never, ever be given that opportunity. What is next? I mean, the exposure has been amazing. Surely it must give you the confidence to kind of dream really big from here on and, and the backing and support, I think, of industry.
1: Definitely. Definitely.
2: Yeah, yeah. So I think the next thing for us is that we sort of talk about the fact that we've got our essentials and we've got our basic range. That's amazing. And we think they're really good products, but we really want to offer sort of more choice and more options for people with disability. And we think that, you know, people with disabilities deserve more than those basics. So our next big thing is, we're looking to hire a fashion designer with disability do come on board to help us create a more sort of, yeah, fashion-forward, funky range that shows Gem's personality more and allows yeah people to express themselves a little bit more through sort of more funky colours, which I think is going to be similar to our line at, at fashion. Yeah.
0: And just to talk me through that, because I think when people think about employing, you know, at, at most of the time they're flat out employing able-bodied people, you know, it's hard enough to consider what kind of computer they need and what kind of chair they need and, you know, setting up kind of credit cards and whatever it is. How do you go about finding, you know, a fashion designer with a disability
1: that fits with your culture and with the business? I think, you know, to be honest, we go about it like anyone else would with advertising roles. Well. So, we're actually going to be putting to add up week. Um, and in it, obviously, we're going to explain what kind of person we're looking for, making it very clear what our values are with JAM and what kind of person we want to fit in within that culture. Um, which obviously they need to have, you know, a really clear mindset on accessibility, which is at the core of JAM. So making that super clear in the job advertisement. Um, however, as yeah, then also going there, it's just like other recruitment process. So ensuring that when we do choose that right person, that we're meeting their needs, whether that be access or not, should really be done with any job advertisement and recruitment process. You know, Molly and I always talk about that when working with someone with a disability, it really should be no difference working with anyone else. You just need to ask what their access needs are and be really open and clear with that communication. So they are the experts of themselves and what their access needs are. And as long as you're asked, they will feel open and included to be able to that to you and we'll work around that as we would with anyone. Um, so I think it's yeah, just really important that you're open with communication and make it known from the start how what our values are um, and how we can be well aligned. To that.
0: And I think, you know, you are so clear about your values, not just kind of within the brand and the, the brand is very much established and, and grounded, you know, in the experiences that you've had. Do you think that your passion has grown through this process, just, you know, I guess understanding how difficult it is even to communicate with manufacturers about what you're looking for, you know, has it changed your perspective or just kind of strengthened the fact that you know you're on the right track?
2: Yeah, I think we were always super passionate about this and really, um, you know, uh, people with disability having the same access to fashion as everyone else. And it sort of was obviously born from Jack and Maddie, but I think the more people we speak to and the more sort of customer stories we hear, It does. It really fuels the fire and makes us more and more passionate to say, "Wow, we are making such a difference." And I think, you know, fashion can seem like such a sort of side thing. It's not really. It seems a bit silly and frivolous. And yeah, I'm quite. You know, people might be like, "Oh, it's just clothing. Like, just wear whatever you want." But it has such impact on how someone performs at their job and goes about their day. And even when you know when you're walking down the street in something super cool, you just hold yourself differently. And I think. We're seeing the power of that more and more.
0: And so what if you if you had to pick one thing that has been, you know, the best part about some of the exposure that you've received. I mean, what what is that that one thing?
1: I think it is just hearing from people with lived experience, people within the disability community saying sort of two things. One, people that have tried our products and giving these really personal stories about how that has impacted them on an individual level. Um, you know, we have this great story we always refer to of someone we know who's a disability support worker and he purchased one of our linen shirts that has magnets instead of buttons um, and he gave that to one of his clients who had an intellectual disability and um, the client that put it on just before their Christmas party and he put it on independently by himself for the first time ever mm. and, you know, before the Christmas party was a bit nervous and a bit unsure about going into this social situation. And this guy who bought it for him said to us, you should have seen the difference between when he put the shirt on and then going into the party so confident and telling everyone, look at my shirt, I did it by myself. Like, huge. That stories like that is what we love hearing and really keeps us going. But then it's also things like, you know, after Australian Fashion Week, seeing comments online and through the media of, again, people from the community saying, oh, my gosh, I've never seen that representation on such a large scale and I feel seen for the first time. Or, you know, I read a comment from a mother who had an autistic daughter and she saw Chloe Hayden on the runway and she said, me and my daughter were both crying when we saw Chloe go down the runway because, you know, my daughter now thinks for the first time she can be seen in the fashion industry as an autistic person. So, you know, seeing comments like that really is the most meaningful to us and really just keeps us going um, and means so much. And so do you think that, you know,
0: in the future, can you see yourselves with bricks and mortar stores? Do you think it'll just be a bigger line? You know, what is the kind of next steps?
2: Oh, it's, yeah, we, we're trying to figure this out at the moment, I think. I think we'd like to see, see sort of pop-up stores and things like that because I think it is such an experience for people to be able to see our products and how they work and try them out in person. Um, I think that that's something important. We do things like expos and things at the moment, but I think, The experience of shopping in line and even sort of showing brands because even going into a store can be quite inaccessible for people with disabilities. So to think that we would be able to sort of educate and showcase what a fully accessible store could look like could be quite a cool thing as well. So...
0: Is there anyone else that you're aware of doing this? I mean, it's funny because I saw you guys pop up and then, of course, I saw Kim Kardashian come out with exactly the same thing. Yeah, and I was it's like, awesome. is she watching Australian Fashion Week? <laughs> She's definitely copying you guys. But is this something that you've seen overseas before and then brought it back here? or I mean, obviously it comes from your experience with your clients, but, mm. you know.
1: When we first started, we kind of we put the OC framework to clothing and was like, oh, we can't adapt the way it's done you adapt the equipment. And we like, oh, we'll adapt the clothing. And then we looked into it and we were like, okay, we're, we're not the first people to think of this concept. However, at the time, so that was in 2017, kind of sort of that idea, um, Tommy Hilfiger has just released his, his adaptive brain just in America. And we were like, okay, it's starting to be done mostly in America and a little bit in Europe at that time. Um, But we couldn't find anything in Australia that was something that young adults like us would want to wear. Um And so we thought, how is this not a huge market in Australia? Um And I think we were really well-timed that when we started, people were just starting to think about what inclusivity and diversity meant within fashion. And I still think we've got a long way to go. But I think people are slowly starting to understand within the Australian market what that means authentically. Um, and how people with disabilities fit within that. So although there are starting to be more brands in Australia, it's such a small category. Um, and again, I think a difference between us and sort of the other brands that do exist overseas at least is that we are ones that, yeah, come from the background of being occupational therapists and not necessarily, you know, within the business mindset or the fashion mindset of like, okay, how can we change these products to be more inclusive we look at what the actual problem is and then create products around that problem and creating a solution from the ground up. So, we are, yes, yeah, still quite in this aspect.
0: And tell me more about the product itself. So, I mean, obviously, you know, within the retail space, we spend lots and lots of time talking about consumer activism, the fact that people that shop with brands, they want to see their values reflected. How much do other issues that retailers everywhere face around you know sustainability or you know projects that they support or where they're sourcing their products how much does that impact the decisions that you make?
2: Yeah I think that's been something we've been exploring and obviously not coming from the fashion background learning about full sustainability and sort of the manufacturing process has been totally new to us as well it is definitely a focus for us moving forward to try and be as sustainable as possible and I think that's probably a challenge for a lot of small businesses as well is sort of how do you 'Cause we've got these values where obviously inclusion and access is sort of our main pillar and then we we're focusing on sort of the um other ones like sustainability as well. And it's trying to be where we are at the moment. So being sustainable as possible while still being a successful business. And then as we move forward I think we'll continue to learn more and incorporate more and more because I know it is important and it can will continue to be more and more important as people should be questioning where their clothing's made, how it's made. So Yeah, I think we also did some market research with sort of, we did some small sort of informal market research um, with our consumer bases. They were saying that it is very important to them, but the most important thing was that inclusion and access at
1: this stage.
0: What are your top kind of tips for for starting a business and and
1: moving into a completely new space? I think for us, because we never saw ourselves sort of becoming (laughs) entrepreneurs or business owners, I think really clear from our point of view that it needs to be sort of solution driven. So making sure that anything you're doing has purpose and is solving a problem that exists. I think, especially these days, a lot of people sort of glorify starting businesses and being entrepreneurs and just doing it for the sake of doing it, where they're not actually making a positive contribution. They're sort of just adding to consumerism. And I think it's yeah really important, especially with the retail industry, that there is so much work to be done and so if you are going to be starting a business within retail, that you are yet yeah, creating a meaningful business that is providing solutions for problems that already exist and not just adding to it. Um, and I think another thing is really leaning on your networks. I mean, not everyone starts a business that has maybe never started a business before. You're not going to be an expert at everything. But if you're genuine and if you are creating a solution for a problem. People are going to want to help you out, people that have a lot more knowledge and expertise in those particular areas. Um, and if you are authentic with your approach to them, nine times out of ten, they're going to want to help you out. Um, and knowing that you'll be able to help them out in the future, and I think we've been so fortunate with them over the past three years that we've really had a great network surrounding us that have been able to help us out with things from, you know, legal questions to accounting to marketing, everything we've needed. Um, it's been super helpful. I think that's something that we, yeah, we've realized that once
2: coming along this journey, we've realized you don't have to be an expert in every single part of your business as well. You can learn things and, yeah, like Emma said, people are willing to help because I think at the start, we felt like we had to act like we knew everything. And we were sort of these like bosses at the top and we were trying to be, yeah, experts in everything, but our expertise is actually in the functionality, the closing, and jam, but those extra bits, we can bring in experts to do because we can't be
1: experts in everything.
0: And what, you know, we talked about some of the, obviously, the biggest highs that you've had as part of this process. But, you know, what is one of the biggest failures
2: that you've had and, and how did you get through that? I think probably how long everything takes is something that we've had to come to terms with. So our because our products do sort of um, need to be super functional, when we get a sample and it's not what we picture, we're like, oh, have we not explained that right or is that, is that, Adaptation or that design feature is not going to work. I think they're the times when we're, that's the disappointing sort of, oh, now it's going to be sort of a long time. We manufacture offshore. And so we're like, oh, well, now we're going to have to give them that feedback and then wait for that to change again and come back to us. And that's going to put that back so far. And I think they're the things that are quite deflating
1: sometimes. We're like, have we don't explain ourselves right or yeah. And I think it's just adjusting our expectations as well with being patient and knowing that you know, okay, something might not work out that well or, oh my gosh, we spent so much money on that. What are we going to do for the next quarter with our finances? I think it's knowing that coming to peace with, okay, we're doing this for the right reasons. People will see that it takes a bit longer to get there. You know, it's all going to work out in the end. It's going to be okay. And that rushing and stressing for the meantime isn't going to help us. What will be will be. And I think, It's taken, and we're still learning that. But I think it's taken us the last three years to really be like, okay, this might be a really stressful situation, and we might think it's the worst thing ever. But in a month or two, we'll look back and be like, ah, we got through that okay, and like, what's the impact been long term? Nothing, because people still come to us saying, giving us great feedback, and still wanting to be involved. Um, So yeah, it's really adjusting our expectations and learning how to let things go. And you
0: know, I think that that's you know such an incredible message you know, for anyone, whether or not they're kind of running a business or whether they're working a job or, you know, whatever it is. I mean, obviously, you know, this too shall pass. Uh, Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, hopefully we're all not getting tattoos with that at at this point. Yeah, I (laughs) I think, you know, it's interesting because you've had such success based on such authenticity, but yet you know, what people don't necessarily understand is that you've also had the same stresses as other people, which, of course, you know, cash flow or supply chain issues or manufacturers, you know, what impact did COVID have in terms
1: of getting your product onshore? It's funny, COVID, when it was happening, people kept saying to us, oh, it's impacted and we'd be like, this hasn't impacted us negatively at all, like it's it's been fine, we've had extra time to work from home, blah, blah, blah. But now... (laughs) we're seeing the ripple effect. Um, so we, about half of our products are a little bit more manufactured in China. Mm. And with what's happening in China at the moment and recently, it's been really difficult to get in and out um, and get yeah, the time frame um, and the cost as well. You know, the cost slowly increasing over time. And I think what a lot of people might not realize is that we are, are still on very, you know, we're still ordering Minimum orders, minimum order quantity for all of our products. Um, and so, you know, people see us on Australian Fashion Week and all this great media, which is amazing. But I think they forget that we're in a really unique position that we've got this huge platform, but we're still a small business like anyone else. Like it's just Molly and I in the business at the moment. You know, we're still working other jobs. We are pretty much seven days a week. And so stuff with COVID and any little thing has a huge impact on us um, and it has a flow-on effect for the rest of our business. And how did you manage your well-being
0: then? I mean, obviously working all the time, you know, you love what you do, which is very, very helpful. But, you know, how do you manage kind of looking after yourself in that process?
2: I think that's where we're very lucky that there is two of us so we've always got someone to sort of chat through things and bounce off things and we both have very different triggers as well i think we've got very different things that stress us out so if i'm quite overwhelmed by something or flustered about something emma's like hey take time go for a run or do whatever you need to do i'm going to handle these emails and then similarly if emma's quite frantic about something i'm normally feeling okay about it so i think we are we, we always speak about how lucky we are that there's two of us um because yeah i think that we both are able to give each other space when we need it and we're able to sort of talk through things with each other.
0: So at the end of these podcasts, I always ask people the same question and it is what are you reading and or what are you watching at the moment? So go.
1: <laughs> um, Reading, I just finished reading um, Say Hello by Carly Finlay who is a disability advocate. her biography, which is a really amazing read for insight of maybe a different someone with disability um so that was a really good read great and what are you watching i uh, gifted yeah <laughs> but so I, I gave that to emma as a
2: present uh, yeah. 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 So i'm glad you i'm glad you've read it yeah. <laughs> so what are you reading molly what am i reading i'm listening to um i actually just listened to what was it called emma emma isaac's book um what is that? What you call winging it? Mm-hmm. Because um, we got we got told by someone. Obviously, we don't come from that business background, mm. and so they were like, "This is a really good um, sort of insight into how to run your company, mm. all that sort of thing." So I've just finished that. Um, yeah, on an audio
0: Well, it's been amazing chatting to you both, and we're just so excited about the future for Jam the Label and, and what's going to come, and, and we're also incredibly excited about. You know the light that you've really shone on, you know just what fashion can be, and and also just inclusion. So thank you so much for everything that you're doing, and and for your time. You know we've loved chatting to you.
1: Thank you. Oh, thanks so much, Dom. <laughs>
3: Welcome everyone to the Retail Research Roundup, where every couple of weeks, Dr. Jason Pallant from Swinburne University of Technology comes and dazzles us with his Retail Research. Thanks again for coming along, Dr. Jason. How are you?
4: I'm going all right, Beck, How are you? Thanks for having me back. Obviously, the first one was uh, good enough to make the cut for another episode. I'm excited about that.
3: You're amazing talent. We love having you. What have you got on the agenda for us today?
4: So I've been talking to, to people recently about a couple of different topics and issues, all that sort of fit under a banner of sort of omni-channel retail, right? Channels working together to sort of create this seamless experience for consumers. So I thought that's a topic I know quite a bit about. Let's dive into it, maybe see what some of the newer insights uh, around that space might be. How does that sound?
3: Sounds great. All right. Topic number one. Let's go. All
4: right. Great. So the first one I found is quite big paper. It's in the Journal of Retailing, which again, as I've mentioned, is sort of the, the top sort of ranked journal for retail within the academic space. The article is called Perceived Omnichannel Customer Experience, Concept Measurement and Impact. And the lead author is Sayed Rahman from Macquarie University. So a local one, which I thought was good, or at least Australian. And what I thought was really interesting about this paper is obviously I co-direct a group that focuses on customer experience, right? CX. And so I thought this idea of OCX, Omni-channel customer experience, I guess piqued my interest because I'm sort of saying, you know, what's the difference there? What, What are we actually really talking about? We're just talking about CX, but it's for Omni-channel retailers. What are we actually talking about? So that was a really interesting one. A lot of the times when we talk about CX, right, customer experience, we tend to be thinking about a single experience or a single channel So, often you'll see, you know, CX of a retail store, right? And so, there's all this sort of idea of customer journey, of they come into the store and they do these things and they pay and then they leave, right? Or we think about the CX of a website, right? A lot of it is sort of applied to a specific channel. And they make the really good point that consumers don't operate that way. They're not necessarily just thinking about, you know, I go into this store, I leave and that's my... the entirety of my interaction we know that the consumer is probably you know they might have researched it online they might be researching things on their phone while we're there while they're in the store they might be interacting with some sort of digital technology at the same time right so consumers are interacting in this omnichannel way or all across all these different channels at once so if we're going to measure their customer experience we actually need to account for for that sort of omni-channel mix. So what does customer experience look like if we think about all of these different channels working together and sort of providing that seamless interaction? So the overall idea of it I thought was really interesting. What they did is what we call a scale development process, right? So this is the, in academic research, we like to use sort of consistent and validated what we call scales. And so if you think about when you're running a survey, A scale essentially means if I'm going to measure something like omni-channel experience, I'm not just going to ask somebody to rate their omni-channel customer experience. It's not just one sort of sliding scale from one to 10. What we tend to do is have multiple items, get them to rate multiple things that then feed up and create this overall construct of on channel customer experience, right? You end up getting a bit more sort of reliable and valid and, and able to actually tease out different people's views when you treat something like that with that multi-item scale. But doing that is actually pretty complicated, right? Like it's it's relatively easy to just say, how is your experience today? It's harder to actually think about all of the components. That might make up that experience, right? So if I think about a physical store, rate the visual aesthetics, rate the ambience, rate the smell, the lighting, that whatever, you've got to think about like, what are the actual relevant components, right? The things that actually uh, reflect the experience rather than just rating the experience itself. Right. So that's what they did, right? So they went through and they did this whole process where they've got to define the construct, they've got to talk to experts, they've got to sort of come up with an idea of how to measure it, then they've got to test all these different ways to measure it, show that it works, show that it's reliable, meaning that, you know, if I ask the same person to rate the same experience, I should get the same answer, right? It doesn't just change randomly. And it also should be valid, meaning that it should actually measure something important, should actually measure omnichannel experience. So they did this whole process. I won't go into all of the details, but essentially they end up with their overall end result being this sort of validated measure for omnichannel customer experience. And to them, what they found from this is there was sort of nine components. Now, some of them are pretty consistent, things we've seen in CX before, customer service, value. Some of the more interesting ones are the more omnichannel specific ones with things around like personalization. Right so how does a retailer use what they know about me from other channels to personalize the experience I'm having now in this channel and that can go multiple ways right that could be you know I've browsed something online and therefore what are you doing when I come into store or vice versa you know I visited the store and bought something so next time I come online what are you showing me that is personal to me or what emails are you showing me that you're not showing to others uh information safety, right? So when we start then having to move across channels, track people, how are we balancing, you know, that privacy personalization paradox that I spoke about in the last episode? You know, delivery returns, so all of those kind of things. And then essentially what they show is that thinking in this omni channel level, so not just customer experience in one interaction or channel uh, is a much better predictor of outcomes like satisfaction, share of wallet. Etc. than those traditional things. So I thought that was quite an interesting idea and, and an ambitious task to not only sort of define what an omni-channel experience is, but present a sort of this is the tried and tested way to measure it.
3: And it's like the next step for mystery shopping for an only channel retailer, isn't it? Like you already pay people to come in and, you know, break the experience of it. So this is the logical next step.
4: And that's right. And then what that also does, and I think which is why these sort of scale development projects are quite interesting for practitioners is that like, These academics have done a lot of that hard thinking about what should be measured, right? So what are the components? What are the things that we should be thinking about that actually make up omnichannel customer experience, right? So as you say, if you're going to then go and test your own brand against these measures, you don't have to make it up. Yourself, You don't have to reinvent the wheel, right? People have spent years defining and testing different ways to measure on each other customer experience. Let's use their one. Let's borrow their effort right, and, and use it for that purpose. That's one of the, the sort of points of um, academic scales that get published in these um, journals. And, and the other thing I find interesting there is then if we start doing that, we can actually then start comparing or benchmarking across different stores or brands or across an industry because we're measuring the same thing. One of the the challenges I have so much when we look at, you know, industry reports or we look at, you know, things consultants put out or or what even brands talk about themselves, is everybody measures and defines things a different way. Right? What somebody talks about as the omnichannel experience is very different from somebody else. And what one person's doing with their app when they measure you know, their user experience is very different from someone else. And then we're trying to compare these things, but they're not being measured the same way. So how can you actually compare them? I think that's sort of a message that you can take away from these kind of research is that you know, people have gone and done quite robust tests of ways to measure things. Uh, and made sure that they're reliable across contexts. So we might be able to seek those out and use them as a way of building some of that consistency uh, in our tracking and comparisons.
3: That's amazing. And we'll have the link for that in the episode description.
4: We will. So that was paper one, Omnichannel customer experience, what is it, how to measure it. Now, number two is all about the informational challenges, right? So if number one is about these are the things you should be measuring, right? The, cost, the experience people have and how that translates across channels, right? Paper two is one that was called Informational Challenges in Omnichannel Marketing, Remedies and Future Research. It's in the Journal of Marketing, arguably the top journal in the space. The lead author, Tony Shui, from University of Minnesota. Now, what they're doing, which I thought was really interesting and almost a counterpoint in some ways to the first one is they're saying, Omnichannel sounds and works great in theory and it it works, you know, when it works seamlessly, it it has a lot of benefits in practice. But in reality, it's not often that it lives up to that ideal. It's not often that brands are actually really creating this, quote unquote, seamless experience across channels, right? And the reason they say, or there's sort of three reasons that they, when they spoke to a bunch of senior leaders across different retailers and brands are saying, what are those reasons? They came up with three. One is just data, right? Challenges with either accessing it or really crucially, for thought it was quite interesting one, is even when brands have the data, they're not integrating it necessarily. So they've got one system that is collecting data about consumers in a physical store, and that is a different system and often from a different service provider or data provider than the website data is. Or you've got Google Analytics telling you about you know, what's happening online. That doesn't connect with your point of sale system. So how can you actually Like there's no way if you don't connect those systems to know that somebody has come from one channel to the next. So how are you going to offer them a seamless experience if you yourself don't even know that is what's happening? So massive challenge there. Second one was about attribution, right, in that with all of these omni-channel sort of touch points and things happening and it could be happening at any given time, it's really then hard to know What marketing activities are working when? Because consumers now don't follow that nice linear pattern we would have liked them to where they sort of search for something, then they come and buy it, and then they review it, and then they're happy, right? They could be buying something while searching for something else. And then while trying to buy something, it's out of stock. So they go and do some other thing and write a bad review about a product they didn't even buy. Like there's so many moving parts, all happening at once that, you know, your things about like, where did they come from when they visited the website, right? What was the last click that they did before then? are really poor attribution models, right? Because that's just not how consumer behavior works anymore. Yet, they're the ones that tend to be reported and used by a lot of places because they are easier um, to do. Then the third challenge being customer privacy, right? We talked about this in the, in the last episode, right? That for omni-channel and for personalization to work, you need to know about your consumers. They need to give up some of their privacy. We need to be able to identify them, right? We saw on the news recently, there's been this backlash to a couple of retailers who have started using facial recognition for loss prevention in stores, right? Now our research has said that that's the thing that consumers hate the most, That's the one bit, like being identified personally when you walk into a store that consumers are least okay with, right? But it's what you need to happen if you're actually going to answer this whole omni-channel idea of seamless experience personalization in store, right? So that's a massive challenge I think a lot of brands haven't figured out is how to actually balance that and provide the personalization that omni-channel speaks to without being seen to breach consumers' personal privacy, particularly in physical stores. So this was a really interesting one just in sort of uh, detailing a lot of the, ch- of the challenges that retailers have and, and where they're coming from. They do go into some of the remedies, right, sort of things like getting into more first-party data, leveraging you know machine learning, multitaskers, blah, blah, blah. But I think the point here was really that as much as we talk about omnichannel, Uh, And we talk about what it should do. If you don't have good data, you can't attribute what activities consumers are doing and what's working and consumers are actively holding their data back from you, you're not going to be able to actually provide those benefits.
3: It's that give and take. It's the, the privacy and the personalization. I mean, for me personally, I don't care who has my face, if it makes my shopping experience a lot better, but um, I understand that a lot of people are very different from me.
4: Yeah. And that's right. And I think that's what retailers need to accept that some consumers will be very happy with it. Right. But you made a really good point there that if it makes your shopping experience better, right now, there's a lot of cases. And I think this is what we saw in the news recently with this facial recognition stuff where they're talking about the benefits of that to the retailer, right? It's like, this is to prevent stealing, right? Now you're essentially just telling consumers you think they're going to steal stuff, right? It's like, what benefit is there to me as a consumer for you know letting you have my face on camera? Show me that by using this technology, that when I walk in, the staff members can greet me and show me to, you know, new stuff that they think I will like. Not that it helps you as a retailer reduce theft in your stores because consumers don't care.
3: Even if it impacts their wallet behind the scenes.
4: Correct, correct. Okay, so that's paper two, challenges in Omnichannel. Third one, the final one is actually one of mine and this is about the value of Omnichannel, right? We've spoken about, you know, it's, what benefits it can have if you can get it to live up to its promise, but all the challenges that sit under that, right? Collecting data, attribution models, privacy, all of that stuff is very hard to do. So one of the questions that we get asked is like, is it really worth it, right? Do we need to be offering all of these sort of seamless things and what actually makes an impact to consumers? So uh, we had a paper recently, it's called Self-Selection and Purchase Value of Research Shoppers was in the International Journal of Retail and Distribution Management. It was myself and some of my CXI colleagues. And what really sparked us on this one is there's this famous quote by Glenn Senk, who was the former CEO of, of Urban Outfitters. And he said, multi-channel customers spend two to three times more than single-channel shoppers. And consumers who engage with the company across three or more channels spend six times more than the average customer. Right. And so for a little while, that was being sort of, that was the opening to any presentation you would see about multi-channel or omni-channel retail. And it was used as evidence or justification that the investment is worth it. Right. Like if we invest in this, you know, fancy new sort of omni-channel system or something that we want to invest in, consumers will spend six times more. It's like totally worth it. Let's do it. Right. Now, the big question that raises is though, why? Why are people who engage with multiple channels spending more? And there's sort of two reasons it could be. One, which is what the quote implies, is that by engaging with multiple channels, you're encouraged to spend more. So you do and you sort of get upsold and you increased your spending because of these multi-channel or omni-channel strategies, which would be great. The other sort of explanation is that when you're planning to spend a lot, Right, or you're really engaged with a brand, you're more likely to then engage with multiple of their channels. Right, If I'm going to go and make a big purchase, I'm going to go and research it online and I might jump on social media and I might do a lot more than if I'm going to make a really small purchase. Now, what that does is it makes it appear like you know, high value purchases are using multiple channels and low value purchases are not. So therefore, it must be the channels. But actually, in fact, it's what we call this self-selection problem. It's the fact that people who are engaged in a purchase, highly involved, and it's worth a lot of money, are more likely to engage with a brand across multiple channels. They're more likely to search for it before they make purchase, etc, etc. Now, that doesn't mean that omnichannel strategies uh, don't have value they absolutely do and it's because that that is where the high value customers are right so it's like that actually tells you that you need these strategies because people will look for them if they're going to make high value purchases or if they're really engaged in a product category but the message here is that we can't expect that you know flicking on a new omni-channel strategy is going to suddenly lead to consumers spending six times more, right? It might have an incremental small impact, but more what it's going to do is help you attract those customers who are looking for that engagement across multiple channels or those omni-channel strategies because they're planning higher purchases. It's a little bit of sort of mental arithmetic and jumping through some some mental gymnastics, but it's an important point, right? That don't expect these strategies to suddenly make consumers spend more, but rather use them as a way to service those high value customers. Yeah, no, I mean, it
3: absolutely makes sense. If I'm planning on buying a car or a bridge or something, of course I'm looking it up. But if you're the savvy retailer who has marketing that follows me everywhere I go across the internet, I mean, it's far more likely that I am going to end up going there, which is the mistake of
4: my yeah and it's a little bit of that idea of meet customers where they are, right? Customers now engage in a multi-channel or omni-channel way. So we need those strategies to find those customers, help those customers convert to your brand rather than your competitors. Again, we we can't think about a I guess a common thread through all of these papers is omni-channel is not like a magic strategy that's suddenly going to make a business profitable. It's more like it's it's now an essential part of being a retailer right? We need to get it right, right. And there's a lot of challenges to doing it, but it's not going to suddenly save uh, a business. So that's it. Some, some retail research roundup on Omnichannel Retail.
3: Well, I feel like I've learned a lot today. Thank you so much for your time. And we will see you next episode of Retail Research Roundup.
4: Pleasure as always. Thank you for having me.
3: Want to know more about the Australian retail industry? Visit nra.net.au for more insights just like these.